Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Season 2 of Digital Forensics in Real Life. We're so excited to be back to bring you a new season of true crime stories solved with the help of digital forensics. And to kick off this season, we'll be speaking with Jim Cole, a retired supervisory special agent with the Department of Homeland Security Investigations. Jim came on the show to discuss his work on the case of Daniel Harris, a disgraced former Top Gun Navy F-18 pilot who sextorted at least 70 child victims around the globe. Thanks to digital forensics and investigative work by Jim and numerous agencies, Harris was caught and prosecuted for his awful crimes. Jim told us about his experience as an expert witness, the process of the investigation, and the impact of this case. We spoke on stage at the Magnet User Summit in Nashville at a lunchtime session, so apologies for the extra noise from this live session. Also, just a quick note that voting is now open for the Forensic Forecast Awards, and DFIRL has been nominated for Web Program of the Year. We'll leave a link in the survey in the show notes, and if you could give us a vote or a five-star rating for the show wherever you listen to your podcast, we'd really appreciate it. With that, let's get to the show. Jim, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Ken. Uh, Tell me how you came to know about this case. So it's interesting because I came into this case actually a little bit later after the investigation has started to do some very specific set of forensics. And so the case started in 2013 when the Bedford County Sheriff's Office received a report from a victim family and the uh, Southern Virginia ICAC got involved, uh, investigated the case. And uh, they started that and what we had was an individual who had horrifically sextorted a minor female child um, to get more sexual conduct from her, had, had you know, tricked her into believing that he was a teenage boy, used uh, social media to do so, used a very attractive uh, profile picture and pictures within the, the Facebook profile, and then tricked that child into taking a compromising photograph, mm -hmm. and then he used that to then sextort her for more material uh, until the point where he started pressuring her to meet in person. And that's kind of when she'd gone to her mother and, and it, it was reported to law enforcement. And so um, that detective took over her profile and started communicating with him in an undercover capacity from the Southern Virginia ICAC. And so that case was kind of happening. Um, meanwhile, in Japan, there was another victim of a Navy contractor who lived in, who was assigned to Air Force Base uh, in, in Japan, and his minor daughter was also a victim. And then that came, made its way and got reported to Homeland Security Investigations in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, especially to Paul Wolpert from our office there was the case agent. And that's because our suspect in this case had moved from Japan and, and was now stationed at the Virginia Beach area. And so uh, at the Naval Special Weapons School, which is kind of the East Coast version of Top Guns, who was an instructor there, had gone through the Top Gun School. Um, and, and like we had talked about, it was a Navy, it was a very experienced Navy uh, F-18 pilot. Right. And as kind of all that went on, there were these two cases that were known about that were kind of happening simultaneously. They didn't know that there was an intersection there. And uh, eventually, Bedford County Sheriff's Office had reached out to others to see if there 
had been any other victims that had a similar type of experience and, and Paul and them got in touch and then they started working it as a joint investigation between HSI, Bedford County, the Sova ICAC, and the Virginia Beach Police Department because at that time, uh, Mr. Harris resided off base in Virginia Beach. And so um, Bedford County, Virginia Beach did a, did a search warrant at Mr. Harris's residence, seized a bunch of digital devices. Right. One of the things that they did not seize was a digital camera. Um, and so kind of this turns out to be a lesson learned type of moment a little bit later on. Uh-huh. Um, but at the time, they didn't know that that camera had any real relevance. Um, and so they didn't specifically seize that camera, uh, thinking that everything just happened in the online world through the online connected devices. Right. And so as they started moving down in the forensics, a guy named Josh Taylor, uh, who was with the Bedford County Sheriff's Office at the time, was starting to do the digital forensics on that portion of the case. And Paul Wilpert was starting to do the forensics on the Japan. They got the evidence from Japan, from the victim. Right. Um, they also started looking at the evidence that was seized from Harris's residence and started going through all that. And as a result of that, they realized that, number one, there were a lot more victims. Um, number two, that there were... It was pretty obvious in their mind that Harris was our suspect mm -hmm. because he had used that camera to record himself. It was kind of weird. Instead of recording and screen capturing what was happening on the device, right. he was actually holding that camera up kind of over his shoulder and filming the screen with a, with a handheld camera. One of the devices that he was using was an iMac. And that iMac, you know, if you think about these, these big, you know, all-in-one computer, right. it's just a huge, a huge 24-inch screen, and that screen's very reflective. And so what happened was he ended up catching himself in the reflection uh, because he was using the handheld camera. And so you could see him and his face in the reflection, but it was it wasn't the clearest image, but but right. you know, the investigators really believe well that's him. Yeah. So in kind of what what happened, um, they realized because they could see him holding this camera that oh no, this camera is now important. So they would end up having to get another search warrant, going back to the residence. Fortunately. Harris was in custody at this time, and they did, in fact, recover this Canon PowerShot camera, which turned out to be really critical to the case. And so one of the lessons, and, and I've had this actually happen on several cases, where one of two things happens, and investigators like don't seize those types of devices, uh, or it's like, well, we can just take the SD card out and leave the device behind because the device is dull. And all, all the data is going to be on the SD card. I caution folks not to do that. Right. Because in these child exploitation production cases where digital cameras are used, it, it becomes a critical piece of evidence in and of itself. And oftentimes you may need to, to take exemplar images with that camera to prove that it was the same camera that was used if you don't have the device. Right. And 
you don't always have the opportunity to go back and get a second bite at the apple. So, you know, it's, it's I, I, you know, with teaching, I make that kind of one of my soapbox moments to like, seize yeah. those devices. Worst case scenario, it's not relevant and you return it. Right. Um, but if it is relevant, then you may not, you may not get it. That's right. You know, we did something similar where we took, uh, we, there were pictures that had been taken. It was a production case and, uh, we needed to show, uh, what was actually going to look, uh, that XF data was going to look like by pictures taken with that camera. Well, the camera's nowhere to be found, right? So we got the same, we knew the make and model. So we bought the same make and model and then we were able to show, you know, at least that you, so sometimes you can go back and and sort of try to fill in some blanks to explain it all to see. But in that instance, you know, we didn't have the original device with its serial number, you know, with, with everything that we were going to get if it had been the original. So, so yeah, similar in my situation, I, I didn't get the second chance though. So, so you all did get to get the camera then, right? Yeah. And I was, I still wasn't involved in the case at this point, Mm -hmm. but you know, some of the digital forensics that were done on the front end, the, reason that they were fairly certain they had the right person was they you know they seized a, a, a mobile device from Mr. Harris which he was using to communicate with the kids and the dynamic dictionary became very important right and, and, and it's such a it was such a ripe area of forensics to, to make sure we look at and there were numerous you know keywords including the Facebook profile names that he was using. There were some of the victim names that were, and those victim names were fairly unique. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the victim names were in there. There was also like the sextorted language that was in there. But he was forcing them uh, to to engage in certain activities. So some of these sexually, sexual nature type uh, terms were in there and even full screens, you know how the, the dictionary can something that uh, capture full screens before things start dropping off and it alphabetizes right. at some point, so it starts chronological and then it moves to uh, an, alpha, an alphabetized list. And so, you know, Josh found, and, and again, they were fairly certain they had the right guy, the IP address was led back to, the, to him, there was all these things. However, as he started to mount the case and he gets a defense attorney appointed and they start going through some of this, the, uh, the, 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 they indict him federally uh, after HSI gets involved and looks at the whole kind of crux of, of everything globally. The United States Attorney's Office receives an anonymous letter, handwritten, that basically says, uh, I said I have a beef with Mr. Harris and I packed into his computer and set him up to make it look like he did this because I have I'm attracted I, I, I have a thing for his wife. He was married, had two children at the time. Mr. Harris did. Yes. And so this this, you know, individual was was claiming so now I feel bad because he's in jail and I didn't think you know it would go this far and so they're there again and so um, that causes the USA to go well I don't really believe this but we have to do our due diligence we need to go in and look was there hacking you know is that possible 
you know, all these things. And so they start to look, and he did have uh, remote, he had, he had remote access software called Splashtop uh, on the, on the, installed on the device. And so the defense attorney uh, started basically saying, well, that's what was used to hack into the computer all these things. And so, and at the time, they had not found the videos yet with the campuses right before that. And then they find the video, they're like, aha, it's clearly him. He's, he's in this reflection and da da da. So they go back to the defense attorney and say, look, it's clearly him. He, he caught himself in the reflection. It's like, yeah. you know. Well, lo and behold, uh, about a couple weeks after disclosing that to the defense, another letter shows up and says, hey, um, I'm, I'm such a great hacker that I created these videos. I basically, I hacked into Harris when he was deployed overseas and he was Skyping with his wife and I took these shots, these videos of him and then I basically morphed them onto the videos that I did of the victims and their exploitation. Goodness sakes. And that's where I came in. So, so at the time, I was, uh, I had stood up HSI's victim identification program and laboratory at mm -hmm. our cyber crime center in Fairfax, Virginia. And that program is all about image, video, and audio forensics to of child exploitation cases and child sexual abuse material when that material has been so far removed from other investigative avenues that really we're, we're, the only way we're going to kind of solve the case is through the content itself. And so it's very CSI-like, mm -hmm. um, and it's using all kinds of things. You know, we, we would use things like uh, we would tap into experts in if we had objects or products in the background and try to regionalize things or you know if a we logo. had outdoor imagery like like with plant life we would consult with uh, experts in flora and fauna who could then regionalize and then we're kind of, it's, it's all about like getting a smaller haystack right right there's all these needles in the haystack if you have a huge haystack well it's tough but if we can start getting the haystack down then we have a real shot at identifying and rescuing that child identifying apprehend the offender and identify and locate the crime scene. And right. That was the whole goal of, uh, of my program. And so one of the things that we also did in that lab was authenticate image and video. And so Paul Wolper, you know, had been to one of my trainings and where we had discussed some of these things. So he reached out to me and said, hey, I got this crazy case. We've done like all these forensics, like we had images in the in the Apple thumbnail cache because it was an iPhone, the, the, the dictionary, and all the, a lot of the traditional forensic things that you know, most of your listeners are going to be aware of, right? But then there was this unique portion where it was like, but now there's these like allegations that this has been faked, and, and so would you take a look at it to determine if that's even a possibility if you know we can figure out you know, right. what happened here. So it's like, okay. So number one, I need you to send me the, the IMAC. Because the allegation here is that someone remoted or hacked into this IMAC and captured video, which means 
it's the, the the video of Paris skyping and for some reason using this power shot, which didn't make sense to me at that um, but that means that that's the camera that we used to capture that, you know, Harris. Right. So I need that camera and the computer. And then I also need that Canon PowerShot mm-hmm. because now they're saying, that, you know, and how, how you would hack in and, and touch anything. But like if you put video over to the computer from the camera, you know, so I need that camera. And what was unique about this Canon PowerShot forensically was this specific make and model of the camera not only produced the, the JPEG image or the, um, the QuickTime movie. So it was a .mov movie file, okay. which is a QuickTime you know, Apple movie file. Uh, it would produce a sidecar file called a .thm file. Yes. So, yeah. So, in, in, you know, I wouldn't say they're rare, but I, they're not super common either, right? And, and I, you know, it's the first time that I have really run into the .thm file as a significant part of this. Right. And so that .thm file is actually where the majority of the EXIF data is being stored for the image. So interestingly enough, the EXIF in the actual movie file or was was relatively small. Mm-hmm. In this .thm file, it had all the relevant EXIF data that we would look for usually in the image file. And not only that, it also stored an actual thumbnail of the very first frame of the movie. So now we've got two representations, right? Even though this is just, this is a, it's, it's a single low resolution snapshot of the first frame of the movie. Interestingly enough, in, in two of the movies, Paris was visible in the first frame. So that becomes significant later on. So when we take this .thm file and I start breaking it out into its components and, and actually looking at the, the thumbnail image that's embedded and carving that out and looking at the structure of the file, um, I notice, you know, so the, the QuickTime movie format uses it breaks the file down into atoms, so they're called atoms. And so I did a tremendous amount of research to figure like, yeah. this out. And the, the atoms break down into some, some hexadecimal code that is signifies the make and model of the camera. And it signifies the some other nuances about the camera. Right. So I asked Josh Taylor um, to take some exemplar images with that specific device. Mm-hmm. And but and again another another important kind of piece here is always check with your prosecutor yeah. before you grab a piece of evidence and start manipulating it in, in, in this way, right? And so. Um, we had long discussions, we got the phone with the AUSA and said, hey, here's the reason I need these exemplars, here's the justification for the court, uh, here's how we need to take these to, to maintain the forensic integrity of the evidence. 
uh, we're going to go buy a brand new SD card. We're going to hard format that card. Right. Right. We're going to take a. We're going to take um, an acquisition of the blank card. We're going to take the hash value of that or store that. And then we will uh, go ahead and utilize the card to take the images. Uh, so if we will hash that again immediately afterward. So we kind of had the the provenance, if you will, of that card right. to show because we were just waiting again because of these letters for you know who knows what the next yeah. thing was going to delegation was going to be, and so we were very careful in how we did that. Got the permission, got the exemplar images, and then the other piece was from the evidence from the acquisitions that we took. Is there an unquestioned like these videos we have? We call them questions videos they're they're in question but are there videos on there where the where there there's not an allegation of hacking that is it clearly like a home video of something that that harris or his wife would have taken that's unquestionable it's not the content of it is not being challenged right and so they found a video of um them you know just no doubt it was them, the, the authenticity of it was not the question. Because I'm able to break that down to see, do I, is what I expect to see in that unquestioned video, the same thing I'm seeing in the questions videos, has that changed in any way through manipulation? Mm -hmm. Because if they're if they're basically the same, there's just one more thing to show authenticity. It's not the be all end all, right? But it's just one more thing. And so as we went through that, we were able to show that one, they were the same. There were really no differences. And then to that, if the allegation's true, right? We're talking about an extremely sophisticated hacker. Not only from the hacking standpoint, but also someone who is like a Hollywood level video editor. Yes. <laughs> and so, because what I what I noted is so first thing I did is beyond all the data analysis was also just a visual analysis of the video. And what I noted was the scene was very complex because there was, we had two imaging devices going happening at the same time, it wasn't just one camera. So we had the representation of what was being filmed in the child's room that was being broadcast to the screen. Right. But then we had another camera capturing from, a, from an almost the opposite angle. Yeah. So that alone makes it complex. But then, too, we had two different light sources. So there was there was natural light coming in from two different windows in in the child's bedroom. One that was backlighting her, and one that was coming in from the side. So that, on top of it, also makes it a very complex scene. And then there was motion. So she's moving. He's moving. Yes. And his hand is moving. Right. So there's three kind of points of movement. So you couple all those things together, it makes a very complex and dynamic scene. Right. And his his reflection would only kind of show up when she would when her shadow would move and block the backlight piece, causing a shadow. And then you could clearly see him because that makes the reflective screen dark. 
But when the light was cascading through because she moved one way or another, he would kind of disappear. Well, to to manipulate that in video is like really yeah, difficult, right? That's very complicated. It, the other piece of the forensic analysis was to take a look at the native resolution of the camera, the, mm. the handheld camera, which was standard high definition. So that was 1280p, basically. But the iMac was a 2009 iMac, and the standard resolution of that camera, which is allegedly filming him, <laughs> was uh, was just plain standard re re resolution, which is 480p. So now on top of it, we have someone who morphed a high definition into standard definition with no evidence of stretching or loss of resolution. Like, like right, so then on top of that, it's, it's like, come on. Right? Yeah, really. So as we kind of go through all these different things, it was interesting because in testifying at trial, I, we created... Uh, exhibits for the, for, for the jury of all these different things. We had these big poster boards that we created, like the thumbnail image, and then that was, oh, that's the other thing. So this hacker, because the THM file is a completely separate file, mm -hmm. then I also did testing. I said, okay, let me take the movie file um, from some of the exemplar images, and I'll, I will create a forensic copy of that. Mm -hmm. And then I'll bring it into a tool like Photoshop or, or Premiere Pro, um, and I'll manipulate it. I'll, I will cause manipulations. And that sidecar file is with it, so it's all in the same structure as if it would be in its normal native, like, you know, after producing the file. And if I manipulate it, it doesn't change the thumbnail. And it does not. Oh, wow. So, a, so an edit within in an editing tool, but yeah. the thumbnail, it doesn't, Adobe doesn't know to go. Yeah, it doesn't know to go back and fix it and change it, yeah. And so that was just another piece, like if this was manipulated and mm -hmm. it didn't originally depict Paris right. and this reflection and it was morphed, well, then I would expect that the thumbnail wouldn't show him either. It would be whatever the original video was. Right. But in at least two of the videos, it, there was Harris in, even though it was low resolution, there he was. We blew those up to show the jury. And so all those things just in concert with each other just made it incredibly unlikely right. that... that that you know that these were faked, morphed, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But we even uh, we even ended up um, making exhibits of the hexadecimal portions of the atoms to show the again the just that they had stayed the same. There was no manipulation of those that that you know the original file is what came out of the camera. And so, you know, all the all those things together, um, you know, again, my part of the case, my part of testimony in trial, all went to that. And you know, the other piece of that, that I think, you know, for digital forensic examiners, this this goes to traditional forensics or more in depth forensics, whatever. whatever. But it's important. Um, you know, we're doing exams and we're, we're thinking about a lot of times 
we're not always thinking about like, well, what happens if this case goes to trial down the road, right? And what are the things that are are kind of going to be important um, for that? And the and what we write in reports um, and how that right may affect. So one of the things that I had written in a report is that. You know, the, the prosecutor was like, well, you know, the defense is alleging that this software was used to do this. Did we find that on the computer? Well, yes, we did, right? So then I, I wrote a report. Well, it's, it is that image or and video manipulation is a possibility. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is something that is possible. Yet it is based on all these findings. I mean, my conclusion is it is highly unlikely, etc. Well, of course, the defense. What do they? What do they focus on? They focus on the. Did you say in your report that it was possible? Right. So I talked to the prosecutor a little bit about that afterward, and I said, like, is that even a statement we need to make in our forensic report? Mm -hmm. Now, the defense is probably going to try and, and cross, get me to say that anyway. Isn't it true, Agent Cole, that it's possible? And right. I have to answer that. But by stating it in the report, he really harped on that, like, like so much. And talking to the prosecutors, like, no, you really don't have to open that door in your reporting. It's like such a small thing that I don't even think about. And we're trying to be really fair and objective. And that's very important for us right. to be fair and objective. So you're open, but we don't always think how the defense will manipulate that. Mm -hmm. And he made such a big deal out of it. Now in the end, it didn't matter. Right. Daniel Harris was was convicted on 31 counts um, of you know child exploitation related crimes, production of child pornography, um, and, and even uh, there was a, a point where there was evidence that was attempt to be um, he he actually while in jail attempted to have another inmate contact family to, to destroy some things and that came out but um, just given all of that that happened it didn't matter because he was sentenced to 50 years in prison which is basically a life sentence yes um, and you know and in that case we had again a little atypical there were five uh, victims that actually came and testified and uh, to you know the horrific sextortion that they suffered under him, you know, and some of the other interesting things that came out of this case was the timeline. The forensic timeline became critically important, right? Because Harris was traveling as a pilot, mm -hmm. he was being deployed over the course of, of when this activity occurred, which which was a fairly significant amount. I mean, it was years. It was a few years of this activity before it was it came to light. He was traveling around the world. He was traveling to Asia, and he was traveling the other way to Nevada, and he was traveling at, at kind of all points in between. And so one of the things that the defense really made the point of was that they timestamps because they were trying to allege, well, they, they actually brought in other pilots, they brought in flight records, and well, he was, you're alleging that this happened at this time, but he was flying. Right. And so there's no way it could have been him. Well, it just took uh, it, it took really Josh and Paul to go back in and go. Well, that's because when he was traveling, he wasn't 
like, like, like with the laptop, because there was also a laptop that was called, he wasn't going in and updating the time zones. Right. Right? And, and, and there were all these kind of factors, and so they were able to go back in, but that was, I mean, it, was, it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. The timeline forensics on that case, just because of his global travel, became very difficult. Right. Um, but those guys did a phenomenal job in laying that timeline out, accounting for the time differences. The defense tried to really just obfuscate all that and, and really kind of just, you know, mm-hmm. go to the jury and go, well, he was flying at the time that, you know, and it's like, no. Right. Like, you know, it was actually three hours earlier than that. And so he didn't hit the flight line for an hour and a half after that activity occurred. Yeah. And here's how we could show that. So it was really, you know, again, just the, the, the you know, the, those forensic things that sometimes, you know, I think we think about the time zone, but we, we get into the mindset that oh, I just have to put the computer in the one time zone and then I'm good. Like in this case, that really wasn't the case. Right, yeah. Um, we kind of had to, they had to kind of track that across. And like I said, that was an easy thing to do. You know, and it, you make such a great point about how, you know, when we create our reports and when we are doing, you know, our portion to report what the data says, and hand that over, you know, we've, we've done our portion in this process and we hand it to that investigator to, and have them take it on through. And then you're right, you don't know what somebody's gonna, you don't know what hole they're gonna try to poke in it, right? They're gonna try their best to, you know, come up with anything that they can and that's why it's important. I mean, we are, we are here to do a scientific, you know, process here in terms of, you know, right. in terms of digital forensics. and. Uh, it's our responsibility to, if there is a possibility that something else can happen, and what's what's our favorite saying in forensics? It depends. That's right. Yeah. It, it, and, and I mean, there's so many times that you know, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and there's uh, so it's it's really important for us to maintain that, and then also you know doing our portion to be able to uh, go and testify, present that to the jury, and then after you do your explanation, it's up to the jury to understand. Right. Look, are, are we who are we believing here? Who you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, pretty much in any case, it's going to go to trial. You kind of you end up kind of redoing the forensics. Right, you end up going back in and, um, and kind of doing things a little bit more in depth than maybe you did on the front end, and, and, and so that process, like in this case, you know, Paul and Josh went back and did like a tremendous amount of work, and the three of us worked in concert. But one of the other questions that came up, and this has happened to me on, on numerous cases, uh, testifying, it's you know, the defense also likes to make a a big deal about well, Agent Cole, you know, you work for the United States government, and therefore you're biased because you're, you're yep. just here to prosecute, like you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I always strive to do, and I think it's important for us to know, is like you know, we're fact finders, and it is yes, there's a relationship. Like we're in an agency, and we have coworkers who are the investigators. And sometimes that's even us, but it is it is always very important for us to maintain that objectivity of, you know, like, let, let, what do the facts bear out? And, and if there is something that it is exculpatory, then it's important to, hey, you know, that is what it is. That, right. That's the science. That's the fact, right? And I, I was asked, and, I, and I, often, I was asked about that specifically in this case, you know, I was going over the transcripts to prepare for this. And 
I, um, I was asked specifically about that issue, and I kind of looked at my response to that because, you know, you know, going back and looking at things you wrote or said years later right. is an interesting uh, exercise. Yes. Um, yeah. But in this case, you know, I, I looked and said, okay, you know, it, 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 this is a, a good moment. They're not, those moments aren't always the case. But, and this is a good moment because I looked at my answer in that, and it was like, because I was asking, like, well, you would never, he said, well, you would not testify for the defense. And I said, that's not true. If I found exculpatory information, I would report that. And if I were called by the defense to testify, then it would be my obligation to testify to those facts. And I have not had a case where that's happened yet. I said, because you usually wouldn't get that far. If I found exculpatory evidence, then I'm going to notify the case agent, we're going to notify the prosecutor. And if it's exculpatory evidence, particularly that, that would show that, that this person is not right, right, then we're never going to get here. Yeah. Right? We're not going to get to this point because yeah. and that's the process working. Yes. And boy, he didn't like that answer. Because <laughs> um, it just shut him down. It yeah. was like, there's nowhere to go with that, right? And um, I, I think if we just kind of answer that with, well, no, I wouldn't testify the defense, mm -hmm. which is a lot of times kind of what happened. Well, but I don't think that's the complete answer. Right. Right? Because at the end of the day, we end up being officer of the court. We end up being like like the facts are and if a prosecution was brought against somebody where there was exculpatory evidence then hopefully that never happens in, in your career but you know, we're obligated to bring that forward and we'd be obligated to testify if called absolutely yeah, that's just what it is and um, you know, fortunately in my career that's that's not happened because I work with reasonable investigators and reasonable prosecutors yeah. and, and so you know the but you know, we all know that there are cases out there where people have been wrongfully convicted. Right. Yes. And, you know, it, it's very, very unfortunate. But I, you know, one of the things that I set out to do, just in my career as a whole, as as a law enforcement officer, as then as a federal agent, and then doing digital forensics, like one of the things that I had really drilled into my head is like, worst case scenario for me is you put an innocent person in that type of jeopardy. And so I think thinking about things that way always made me very diligent in working through whatever, whether it was an investigation and collecting evidence in a crime scene, or whether it was the digital investigative side and, and dealing with the digital landscape of evidence, just right. always being very diligent in, in how we approached it and what we were doing. Right. Now, I want to ask you about uh, the victims with this uh, case. So, uh, you said how many victims were identified? So, we end up uh, figuring out that, oh, and I say we, uh, I, that wasn't actually my component in this case. Right. Paul and, and uh, investigator Bayar, who um, unfortunately passed away. He was, he was the primary Bedford County detective, unfortunately passed away before the case went to trial. Which was another oh wow uh, you know difficulty the defense objected to a lot of the evidence coming in because of there was a break in chain of custody and right but, but it was just another challenge but, but your good documentation overcame that challenge and again right. being diligent and and, yeah. and everybody in this case had been diligent but uh, they figured that they figured out there were over seventy victims now. 
some of those victims were they they could they found the victims and evidence of victimization, but they could not actually identify the person that was behind the profile just because of the amount of time that had gone by and some of the profiles had been deleted and gone right. on. There just was no way like that there was a break in being able to get back to them physically. Um, but, and, you know, it also kind of goes to show like in this case, out of the victims that were identified, which roughly like half were identified in person, only one disclosed. Only one child went to their parent and disclosed. The the other child that started the case out of Japan, their her parents actually found they, they looked at her phone and they found it and they're the ones who brought it. The child did not disclose. Right. And I think that really goes to like, you know, how underreported like, like it's well, it's embarrassing for them. It's terribly embarrassing. And there's a whole bunch. I mean, there's it's a lot hurt. Of there's a lot of an emotion in this. I mean, I mean, and they're a child. That's right. You know, That's I mean, right. they're dealing with a lot of things that's happening. I mean, this uh, it, it's incredible what all goes into that for for these poor victims. I mean, just what they have to go through, yes. you know, to to even come forward to say something to mom and dad, you know, which, you know, we all, you only had one that did. And then, right. but then you had a few that did end up testifying, right? Yeah. So after identifying, they kind of took, you know, a representative sample of the, some of the victimization. Um, and they said five different victims did come testify. And, uh, you know, um, this case is kind of memorialized in a documentary film called Sextortion, The Hidden Pandemic, um, which is available on, you know, different platforms. Um, Wonderful movie, by the way. They did a, a very tasteful uh, representation of this case, I felt like, in uh, explaining. And as, as we've discussed, though, I, I'm thankful they did that so that people can help to understand Working yeah. these cases, though, and what re these victims really go through is so much more in-depth. You oh, cannot yeah. make a movie to ha help right. somebody understand. That's right. In the film, like you said, they did a really good job of showing one of the victims testifying. And, and can you, you know, like, one, how difficult it is for a child to disclose, right, to their parents, somebody that they yeah. are, you know, it, it, but then they get up in front of a group of strangers and talk about your victimization, and she's a remarkable young woman, she's doing very well, and so it's like, it's really interesting, and, and um, I've had the good fortune to, I didn't meet her as part of the case, I actually met her afterward, mm -hmm. As part of the film, because I, I participate in the screen, some of the screenings and panels. We do screenings of the film and panels with the Q and A afterward, and, and she's participated in some of those panels. And so I've gotten to know her a little bit. Um, one of the victims, and, and she is doing, like I said, remarkably well. Um, but that's a journey. It's yeah. a journey. Yes. And, um, you know, one of the things I think that from law enforcement is why we're talking about victimization is it's incredibly important for us to think about what they go through and being trauma-informed in our processes and different things, right? And from the investigative standpoint, but even it does touch into the digital forensics, right? Like, yeah. 
oftentimes I'm asked, you know, we're, we're, we end up working in their trauma because of the depiction of them, right? And they, whether they know it consciously or subconsciously, they know we've seen it. Yes. And there's a, there's a duty there, right, that we have to carry to be very responsible with that material and, 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 and you know, the, in, in the work that, that I've done and, and having a lot of contact with survivors of child sexual abuse material cases, um, they often want to know, like, well, what happens to that after? Yeah. Right? It, they, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's one of those things that sure. they think about. We don't think about that, right? We don't, we don't think about it. And so... You know, and it's important to be honest, mm-hmm. right? Not, not, but it's also important to be empathetic and compassionate with that answer. Absolutely. Right? But I think, you know, digital forensics examiners who are, you know, coming across that material and should at least be aware that that's something that victims think about. Yeah. And so the answer that I always kind of give is, well, we, number one, it's evidence of a crime. But number two, we take extra precautions with that particular type of evidence. It is very limited in who within our organization ever sees that, ever exposed to it. So you, you should know that only the folks that have an absolute need to see it are the ones that end up seeing it and also you know we talked a little bit about the national center for missing and exploited children right and the cvid program and then child victim identification program right, the child child victim identification program and that it that the it, it goes there but also very very securely held but then it helps right uh, it helps in the the global process of identifying other victims and so there's a measure there of kind of explain to them that, you know, yeah, you know, one, we're very careful with it, but it, it is also utilized, mm-hmm. not in a public way in any way, shape, or form, but it's utilized to help victim identifications efforts around the globe for other child victims. And I think that's important to, to be able to articulate to them because then it, it gives a sense of, well, I'm actually helping like there's there's right. there's a piece here that's it's it's a positive thing yes um, and it's it's their choice also if they if they are willing to uh to give their information so that the uh, so that if that picture does pop up again yes. then the investigator's name not that individual's that's name right. uh the investigator can be called to testify right. to say indeed you know for a fact that is a real person and that's you've right. you've done your vetting to know that before all of that was submitted and accepted within uh the program at NECMEC. so um it's very interesting to me i had a case with numerous victims it was very interesting to me after you know probably identifying 80 something victims that i think we only had 28 who were willing to uh, let NECMEC take their information and um I, I think a lot of them, even though they were overage, you know, by then yeah. for by many years, you know, they, yeah. they just still didn't, they didn't yeah. want to be associated. They just wanted to move that's on from right. it. That's, and, you know, everyone yeah. has their own coping things. So I, right. I am going to ask you about a program that I know you're involved with, which is a phenomenal thing, I think, is that when after there is some type of, you know, trauma for these victims and then they got to go home. 
right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so victims who are uh, victimized in their home, right? Usually familial, but not always. I mean, there are other ways that that can happen. But when they're victimized in their home, you know, oftentimes like the perpetrator is removed, but mm-hmm. these children are going right back into that environment. They're going back into that home. That same bedroom, the that, same things. Right. And that, so what happens is it just become constant reminders of the trauma, mm-hmm. right? Constant reminders of the abuse. And so through an organization called Room Redux, um, which uh, got started in New- by Susie Vibral and her husband Greg um, in New Braunfels, Texas. She kind of recognized she was a, a child advocacy center advocate. She kind of recognized the hearing the stories of these children and some of these kids were, were not sleeping back in their beds. They, you know, just because of the trauma and so she created uh, Room Redux, it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they go in and get a referral from law enforcement or from a, like a CAC about a child who's in that situation, or children in some cases. Mm-hmm. And they transform in a day, they bring a whole team of volunteers in, they get, they get a lot of um, the furniture and, and just the, the different things that will go in and they completely transform those rooms into these happy, healthy environments right. that are just more conducive to healing. And um, we just got done doing one last weekend. It was my first one and um, my wife's on the board and so and very recently and so we went to Uvalde, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where the mass shooting occurred and we had six child victims oh my. Uh, of a familiar abuse. So we, we actually, and this is a little atypical, but we transferred, we, we did the whole house basically. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was exhausting. Yes. But it was incredibly impactful. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, and not only just the after part of it, but the process and how hard everybody worked. And, you know, it was an FBI referral uh, that, that the case, it was an FBI case. And a whole bunch of folks from the local FBI office came out and oh, nice. helped, which is amazing. And then with the other, a lot of, you know, volunteers. And, and we had, I mean, there were at some points maybe too many people, but that, it, that's a good problem to have. And the transformations were incredible, like absolutely incredible. Um, and you can go to the Room Redux site, mm-hmm. uh, roomredux.org, and you can see uh, these transformations. You will not see the children. And we don't either. The transformations are done anonymously. Mm-hmm. So the family is basically kind of whisked away for the day to do some activity yeah. uh, that's fun for them. And then we you know, do this transformation. And we get out. Everybody's gone. Right. And then the family returns home and it's so they can have private you know moment and we're not gawking you know right so um and and, but yeah it's it's really was an incredible that's that's so important for them to be able to feel comfortable to go back to find some kind of normalcy and i also want to ask you and so you've retired i have i just retired march 31st after 20 years of homeland security investigations and 35 in government and law enforcement total and so tell me what you do now yeah, so we've got a couple things going on. One of those is um, I am uh, the chief of law enforcement enterprise and technology with Operation Lightshine, 
that is a nonprofit organization based here, based in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of born out of a tragedy. Um, the founder, Matt Murphy, his uh, younger sister was um, trafficked and murdered. And Matt was a army uh, special operations guy. And this stoked a passion in him because of this personal tragedy for him and his family. And so he was looking for ways to, to impact the issue, right? And, yeah. and start off with trafficking, which led him to child exploitation. He had, being a military SOF guy, he, he thought, well, his ideas were very vigilante. And so he was looking for a law enforcement partner and he happened to know one of our agents in the office and they referred him over uh, to me and we sat down and had a meeting. He pitched a bunch of these vigilante ideas. Yeah. <laughs> And we just, I was like, nope, can't do that, can't do that, can't mm -hmm. do that. And he was like, ooh, well, how, how can I help? How do I try to prevent other families from going through what we threw? How do we protect children? How do I honor my sister? And as a result of that, um, I said, well, look, law enforcement's woefully under-resourced to fight this problem. Mm -hmm. And being a supervisor over child exploitation here in Nashville, I've gone around to different agencies so, hey, I'd like to start a task force. Can you give me a body to go do this? And they just don't have the body. They're just, right. they, they, I mean, they're just under-resourced um, to kick over a body to do one, this, this very specific thing. Right. And so I said, you, you said you can raise funding and a lot of the local agencies can take funding, mm -hmm. um, have a mechanism to do that. So how about we fund their ability to then, de you know, dedicate someone to work this crime type the training, the technology. The technology is expensive, as you know. Yeah. The forensic, and, and you cannot do these cases without forensics component, and forensics yeah. is expensive as well. Hardware, software, I mean, all the things. And so the whole the whole thing here was, if we could resource, if you could resources as a nonprofit, now the federal agency, we can't take that funding, but we could mm -hmm. certainly participate with the state and locals who do take the funding and work alongside them in partnership. Mm -hmm. and so it kind of benefits everybody. And so that's what the organization does. And so we set up intercept task forces, that's interagency child exploitation and persons trafficking task forces, um, which comprise a multi-agency and the NGO funds basically kind of where the government leaves off. Right. And you're able to help fill in the blanks. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to sit down here with me today. I appreciate you sharing this case with me. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for what you've got going on um, because this is an ongoing problem. I mean, this Absolutely. is, uh, it's not going away. No. And you just need more people to help. And, and thank goodness for people like you and for people like Matt who had a you had a vision and you know who you know unfortunately it came from tragedy but yeah wanting to just push forward and do do good things that's right and it's, right. it's very refreshing it is well, so. thank you so much for having me kim it was uh, an honor to be here and a privilege and you know i've enjoyed the podcast and listening to other like you know chad and, yeah. um, it's been a really great experience That's it for this episode of DFIRL, and thanks for coming back to listen for season two. Thanks also to Jim Cole for sharing his story at the Magnet User Summit and for all of his great service at the Department of Homeland Security Investigations. We'll see you next time. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.